0: You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are sharing conversations about the five adaptive muscles the church must strengthen to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. For more information about these muscles, visit tmf-fdn.org and click Leadership Ministry.
1: Welcome, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood. This is our second of six episodes about the five adaptive muscles that congregations need to strengthen and exercise in order to be fit, agile, and ready for God's now. Our first episode was an overview of the five muscles, so if you didn't get an opportunity to listen, I hope you will. In that episode, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Blair Thompson White and Scott Sharp, and we talk through each of the five muscles— In some ways, we demonstrate how to have conversation around each muscle. Very simply, find some exercise buddies and start talking. Have conversations about these muscles with people in your context, with your leaders, your colleagues, and see where the Spirit leads. Conversation, listening to one another, discerning the guidance of the Holy Spirit is how we begin to exercise these muscles together. My exercise buddies... Blair and Scott are back with me today. Hi, you two. Hi, Lisa. Hey, Lisa. Our muscle today is the first muscle, grieving well. Blair, you interviewed Suzanne Stabile about grief. Why don't you start us off and share a little bit about Suzanne and some of your observations from your conversation with her?
0: Suzanne Stabile is a highly sought-after speaker and teacher known for her great laugh that she has and her vulnerability and creative approach to the Enneagram. And she's been studying the Enneagram for 25 years and learning from folks like Father Richard Rohr. She has become now a best-selling author and really world-class teacher of the Enneagram. Uh, Her newest book, just out this fall, is The Journey Toward Wholeness, Enneagram Wisdom for Stress, Balance, and Transformation. And who doesn't need some of that right now? (laughs) This conversation about grief, you know, you may think, well, why ask Suzanne Stabile about grief? Uh, if she's done this other work around stress balance and transformation, and and when we asked her, she enthusiastically said yes. She wants to talk about grief because she is so passionate about it. And she did a six hour workshop, which you can download and listen to off of their website on Life in the Trinity Ministry. And the six hours is so rich and so deep into the why of grief and into how we individualize our care for one another as we are grieving. So I think what, you know, talk about the conversation that we had, and I'd love to hear you all share your uh, impressions of it because it was a surprising conversation. I mean, I'll just say that, that I I don't know what I expected, but it it wasn't what I expected. And I think I expected maybe her to like go through all the numbers and tell me what I need to know about my number. But I think she realizes that we've got to do some deeper work about why grief and what grief is before we can begin to even do our own personal reflection on grief. That's that's my take on it. And and the depth that she gives us is really remarkable. And just a few yeah. things that she notes, and then I, I want to, to pass to you all, but she talks about rituals and the power of ritual and really challenges the church right now to create space for ritual so that people can come and experience it in community, in their bodies, in their minds, uh, in their mm-hmm. hearts. I mean, it's it's a holistic approach to grief that I think in her mind and in, in her heart, the church has really failed to do, uh, that we've not done a great job at creating space for grief for individuals to come together in community. And so I'll start with that and just say to you all, what, what did you think about our conversation?
1: So I think you nailed it Blair when you say you know it's it's as if she knows and has observed that we we actually haven't been doing the deeper work that's needed. So when you look at the church and where we are, when you look at the culture and you see behaviors, you know, from anxiety to violence and polarization and despair and those sorts of things, she's noticing that and and observing that that a lot of that is actually born out of undealt with grief. And so we have to sort of acknowledge that and name it before we can even get to the place of saying, well, this is how I need to grieve well, or this is what it looks like for me. And, and that feels really important. I, I appreciate that that's where she's starting by the naming and observing.
2: The piece that stuck out for me was the difference that she helped name for me in my life uh, the difference between grief and comfort and comfort is kind of those things that we do around grief. It's the, it's the mm. funeral meal and it's the send a card and all those kinds of things. Those are comfort level things, but they don't get into grief. And I, what, what the realization was for me is that I'm happy to stay in comfort. I don't necessarily <laughs> want to go to grief because comfort oh, is yeah. better And so I wonder about, like, the expressions of people and how they're dealing with grief are really about staying in that comfort zone rather than dealing in that deeper step where we have to face those issues.
0: And I think, Scott, it's important, too, to share one of the resources that Suzanne bases her teaching off of. And Suzanne is a teacher at heart. She will say that, like, she's a teacher. And so she shares the resources with us. And so one of them is Healing Through the Dark Emotions. And that's Miriam Greenspan. And I just love that title. I will confess I haven't read that book, but Suzanne's teaching from it. And, and I think that's kind of what you're saying, right, Scott, that like, we got to go there. We have to go into grief. We have to go into the deep feelings of loss in order to discover healing. And it's, it's so ironic, right? We don't want to go there, but that's the only way we can go to be healed.
2: Ritual helps us go to those places we'd rather not do.
0: And that the church ought to be leading the way, right? I
1: mean, this is our this is our wheelhouse. So let's listen to Blair's interview with
0: Suzanne. So Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today to have this conversation. I have to begin by sharing with you that I listened to your six-hour class on Grief in the Enneagram, which is available on the Life in the Trinity website. And how about that <laughs> for a plug right at the beginning here, right? <laughs> um, there are great resources on the Life in the Trinity website and we're, we'll put that link in our show notes. Um, but I'm, I'm just so grateful for you and for your ministry and for the ways that, that you share your teaching and you just make it so accessible to us. So, um, so thank you. Thank you for being right. you. And you start the grieving and the Enneagram workshop by sharing about grieving in real time. Mm-hmm. And I thought we just might start with that, which just gives a good foundation about why grieving is important. So would you share with us this idea of grieving in real time? Sure. You know, I've tried to break up with the church several times because she's hurting
3: sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. I can't do it. I just, I can't do it. And I have to say that one of the things where I think the church has let us down is in setting the table for grieving. You know, my language is often that if you want something to happen, then you set the table in preparation for something happening. And if you don't do that, then don't expect the thing to happen. If you don't create a space and a place. And if you haven't created a belonging system where people know that they have a seat, at that table, then the things that we need to experience to be healthy and whole, we can't get to. And I'm grateful that all the pastors I know are prepared to deal with me if I'm grieving. And I'm uh, grateful that there are rites and rituals that are set up for me to be able to grieve. But we have, as a culture, have gotten so far away from the understanding of grief, that we're going to have to be taught how to grieve before those who are trained to deal with us while they're grieving have anything to deal with. And I was talking about grieving in real time before the pandemic. And now mm-hmm. we're in a situation where I don't even know what the number is at the church where Joseph pastor. It's a big number of people who are waiting to have a memorial service or a funeral or whatever language people Mm -hmm. understand that to be, which eliminated grieving in real time. So now before I thought, Oh, I can be a voice for grieving in real time. Meaning that you grieve Mm -hmm. in the time of loss, that you give yourself time Mm -hmm. and space to do that, that we create a culture together where people are told to take whatever time they need instead of told that, It's time for us to get back out there and it's time to be over this now. And I think now we have to have an even more patient understanding of what's been lost because people were not given an opportunity to grieve in ways that were familiar to them in real time. But we don't know their stories yet. And so it could be that there's been a lot of grieving that has been done in real time. But it was done by a family by themselves or a spouse alone or children on their own. And we're going to have to collectively insist on uh, opportunities for people to find ways to teach others how they've dealt with their loss and to celebrate what they lost. And then the immediate next question is that everybody's going to think that I'm talking about death, but Uh we have all these people who have lost their jobs and people who have lost their homes. And we Uh have a whole host of young people who miss things that they looked forward to for their whole lives. Uh A junior, senior prom, high school graduation being a freshman and going away to college, all of those things that are rites of passage. And we don't have many anymore in our culture. And that is to be grieved as well. We have so much grieving to do. So there are two authors that I want everybody to be aware of. Everybody, everybody. And you can't read them soon enough. I can't find a way to suggest strongly enough that you read them. And the first is Pauline Boss. And the book is Ambiguous Loss. And Mm -hmm. it's astonishing. It's astonishing because she has been dealing with all of this for a, a long, long time. The second book is by Miriam Greenspan. And the title of the book is Healing Through the Dark Emotions. And I'm hoping that in the time that we have, I'll be able to share a little bit from each of those authors, because I'm a teacher who is trying to offer my thoughts about something, an area where they're experts. And so, foundationally, I'd like for people to, uh, I'd like for your listeners to get to hear a little bit from the experts and then (laughs) <laughs> perhaps what I have to say about that is helpful,
0: and perhaps it's fluff. I hope it's helpful. Certainly helpful. Yeah. And I, we will certainly get to that. I'm sure it'll we'll be woven in as we have further conversation. But you are certainly an expert at the Enneagram uh, and the ways that you draw from so many different aspects of life and integrate it into the Enneagram. And so, of course, uh, we can learn so much about grief through the lens of the Enneagram. And I'd love to you just hear you share about how the Enneagram can inform how we grieve and and how we can be present to others who are grieving. Richard Rohr, you know, taught me the
3: Enneagram, Father Richard Rohr, and he's been my spiritual director and my mentor for a long, long time. And two things he said to me. He told me that the Enneagram he thought I was intuitively gifted to own, meaning that I could learn it and wear it not just learn it. And he said at a different spiritual direction appointment Mm -hmm. that my other gift was synchronicity. And it seems now looking back over the last 25 years that in fact, that set the table for me to live into the Enneagram and whatever else is happening in and around us. So let me start by saying that the Enneagram is guided by the understanding and the reality from Maurice Nicole from the 1940s that there are three centers of intelligence and that they are thinking and feeling and doing. And if you lay those three centers of intelligence on top of the Enneagram, then what you find out is that the Enneagram triads are each dominant in one of those three centers, twos, threes, and fours in feeling, five, sixes, and sevens in thinking, and eights, nines, and ones in doing. And the reality is that those three centers in every human being trigger each other in very predictable ways. My uh, unsung heroes of the Enneagram are Hurley and Donson, And listen to what they said. Without some significant awareness and inner work, we allow these three centers to focus and function at their lowest and most mechanical level. And then they go on to say, when we could be using these three centers to help us to live at our freest and most deeply spiritual way. And then they go on to say this, working with the three centers is the most practical way to grow spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally. So that's it. That's a big thing right there. When it comes to grieving and to us talking about grieving, there are no do-overs. So people who are not grieving in real time because of their Enneagram number, because of circumstances, because of all of that, there are no do-overs for real time.
0: Mm.
3: I um, wasn't present when my dad died. I had little children and I was flying back and forth to Lubbock and I was with him the day before he died, but not when he died. And it was very important to me to be with my mother when she died. And we knew that she was dying. And my mother's death occurred with me holding her. I was in bed with her, with her laying in my lap. And Joe, she had always asked Joe if he would just sing her to heaven. And Joe had been singing for about four hours. And um, there is a grief that comes in that time, but it takes time even in that circumstance. And I have come to believe that one of the things Joe says when he does funerals is he says, life has not ended but merely changed. So you can imagine how many times I've heard that from him at funerals. But what has happened to me as I've started to work on grieving is I've come to believe that we have to grieve through the, the transition in order to live into the teaching that life has merely changed.
0: Mm. Does
3: that make sense? Yeah. It, yeah. It's like you can't get from here to there. You you have mm-hmm. to grieve through what's happening to believe and own that life has not ended but merely changed. So what I yeah. kind of found out in terms of working with the Enneagram and grieving is that, I was going to have to teach grieving first. I did a mm. workshop that you didn't hear in the six hours because it was a disaster on the Enneagram and grieving, but I did it without teaching grieving first. And mm. there was a disconnect that was palpable in the room. So we just gave everybody's money yeah. back and said, we're so sorry. <laughs> and you can come free next time when I do it right. And, um, oh, I, I, you know, I'm kind of sad that I'm 71 and I think I know what words mean because I don't use the dictionary very much anymore. So I looked up grieving mm. and it says, grieve is the stronger word of grief and grieving, implying deep mental suffering, often endured alone mm. and in silence, but revealed by one's nature mourn on the other hand refers to manifesting sorrow outwardly so if we Mm -hmm. grieve inwardly and if that is manifest outside of ourselves with mourning or what I would call sadness then the question is are we allowing a culture that can't accept the fullness of the paschal mystery of living, dying, and rising. Since we can can Mm -hmm. only deal culturally frequently with living and rising, then are we being denied on many levels the opportunity for sorrow and sadness? And I think the answer is yes, Mm -hmm. we are. Joe grew grew up in a very Catholic family, and his grandmother, uh, Joe was born in an Italian ghetto in New York his grandfather died young and Joe's grandmother wore black for the rest of her life. Mm. Now that's the other end of not being able to live in the fullness of the Paschal mystery. There's a time for things, you know, and I, I kind of think our Jewish brothers and sisters had a really good thing going when they decided to sit Shiva. And, you know, certainly your listeners are not going to know how much I love Joe Stabile. But Blair, you got a really good idea. <laughs> I I just adore him. I, he's the best person I've ever known. It's a privilege to do life with him. I adore him. And I I think I want to sit sugar.
2: Mm.
3: And when I talked to him about that, he reminded me that my dad and mom moved to Florida, Texas in 1931. And they, they built the first hospital there. And my dad practiced medicine there for the next 57 years. Wow. And when he died, we went to the cemetery. The church was packed. And we got to the seminary and, cemetery. And after standing and talking with people around his grave for two hours after the service there had ended, Joe just told the... Men from the funeral home to go back to the funeral home and that we would contact them when we were gone because there were still a hundred people there. And all these people told my mom and my brothers and me their stories of my dad. That is healthy grieving. Mm. But there's no time anymore. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for wakes. we don't have time to sit Shiva we don't have time unless you're in a town of 5000 people to stand at the cemetery and have somebody come back we don't create time and interestingly enough in methodist tradition when we have people come back to the church for a meal or a meal for the family or all of that 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 ends up putting all of the focus on something other than law. one of my challenges to the church is why don't we do You know, generally when people are about to bury the person they love, they're not hungry. So I'm not (laughs) sure why we're feeding people. What if we created a space for grieving instead of for eating? And then what might that offer? I decided to study grieving because in November of 2013, a young man that I had helped raise, died by suicide at 41. My ex-husband died in August of 14. My brother-in-law died in January 15. My sister-in-law died in January 15. My brother Carol died. And in 2013, Mm. one of my nephews died. And, um, that was a lot. That's a lot.
0: Mm. Yeah.
3: And then three men who I love and care about, all three sevens on the Enneagram, experienced enormous, overwhelming, life altering sadness and depression. Mm-hmm. And through my care for and presence to all three, I learned that I needed to teach something about the Enneagram and grieving. And here's why. And this is just a seven example. There are examples from every number, but sevens reframe things so quickly that grieving is almost an impossibility without some kind of professional help, which I would love to have come from the church, but frequently it comes from therapy Mm -hmm. instead. And these three men, one very young, one pastor at a big steeple church in another city, Another teacher in the Dallas County Community College system, the teacher had not been to work in 42 days. The pastor called us and said, can you please come? I'm in a lot of trouble. And our son, Mm -hmm. Joel, was young, seven, and Joel attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. And in walking with all three of them, the truth became that they came upon the first thing in life that they couldn't reframe. And it caused, like dominoes fall, everything that Mm -hmm. they had ever not grieved to come to the surface. And they had no tools for grieving. And I think it has been assumed that we can't teach people how to grieve. Mm. And I think we have assumed that people only learn if we're teaching. I think we can talk about grieving. I think we can model grieving. Mm -hmm. I think we can encourage people to read things that help us learn to set the table for other people to grieve. I think the worst time to give a book on grieving to someone is when they just lost somebody. It's like have a tuna sandwich at the church and then read about this person's loss. And that's a terrible response. And I don't mean to take away from the heart behind it. I don't want to take away from that. I would rather we do those things than nothing. But you know, grieving has got to be as unique to the individual as anything that's ever going to happen, ever in their life. I don't know. I I, I think looking at the Enneagram is helpful. Only if people learn before they're faced with grieving Ones, for example, there's not a right way to do it. So if you're a one on the Enneagram then you're out of luck if you need a right way, because there's not Mm -hmm. a right way. But that means that they're going to feel like they didn't grieve well. And twos are, Mm -hmm. for just an example, just another example, twos are going to pay attention to and then inhabit other people's grieving and Mm -hmm. not even know that they didn't grieve. So that's a whole thing to talk about each number and where the pitfalls are.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. That's all you can offer. How they grieve is going to be individually. So I think we got to have good listeners, and those are hard to come by. I think we have to have people who know that they're not good listeners. I'm not a good listener. I was trained as a Stephen minister and as a Stephen leader, and I'm a good Stephen leader, and I'm a terrible Stephen minister. I was trained uh, as a spiritual director, and I'm terrible. I'm a terrible mm. spiritual. I, I see no reason for somebody to go through a lot of pain when I can tell them exactly what they need to do. <laughs> right. So yeah. I think that we have to identify what we're not good at before we sign up for ministries that it looks like we would be good at. And I, you know, I, we, we don't do that either. Right. We don't do that either.
0: I hear you saying so many things that are just applicable to leaders in congregations. I mean, inviting us, for example, to, experience the fullness of the paschal mystery to experience the good friday not just once a year but to have the capacity in our congregations to sit and hold grief to sit together in grief but i'm wondering as as you look at congregations and this idea of of grief or grieving well what would your dream be i mean it how what would that look like for congregations that were really doing grief well together help help us to paint a picture of what that would be For starters, Holy Thursday, Good Friday,
3: Saturday, Vigil, then Easter Sunday. Because what we leave out in our denomination is the Saturday Vigil for the most part. So that means we don't have to wait. So we took out the space of time to feel and own and live into what happened Good Friday because we skip to Sunday morning Easter. So that's the first thing. I've been in churches where they, you know, I've been in a lot of churches. They do a lot of things to mm-hmm. honor people who died during the year. I I think that needs to be participatory. So I, I think the plan at my church, I, I don't know, for all saints, is to stand up when the names are read, if you knew that person or that's been played. That's happened places I've been It's honoring and it's lovely. But um, there's no modeling of grief. So in the church I grew up in, if somebody had a baby, then there was a carnation on the altar the first Sunday or the Sunday that the baby was baptized. Right. Well, I wonder if we don't need to do something in worship in real time when somebody dies other than read that we're going to pray for them. Maybe we have the Christ candle and we have another candle or three other candles or the candles today represent this. And they, the family lit them when they came in to worship today. Or, you know, the, the more ritual we can put in it that is participatory, then the more people get the flavor of grieving. Flavor is a terrible word. I, the, I don't know what the feel for grieving is better and i don't feel like i am quite ready to talk about collective grieving but i think what what we are going to be faced with in coming months in our churches is an opportunity to offer some ritual around grieving that has to do with things like, I just read an article last week by somebody who works for Ministry Architects. It was fantastic. And the title of the article was, They're Not Coming Back. You know, if, if, if larger churches aren't careful, then what's going to happen is people are going to pile all of their pain on why aren't things like they used to be? Why have we changed mm-hmm. worship times? Why are, I want my church back. I want, I've been in this church since before time and I want to do it the way I want to do it. So the only way I know to address that in a healthy way is to grieve that we can't do it that way anymore. That's not what we're called to. That's not what we need to be doing. And it's a big loss. And so we need to grieve that loss. So I'm familiar with a church that used to have an 830 service that isn't going to have one anymore. But rather than just not have it, the people from the 830 service need to be, in my opinion, brought together to grieve the fact that that's not part of the church's plan moving forward. And that recognizes that there's a loss and honors what was. And then hopefully in the rhythm of the Paschal mystery invites people into what can be. And anything we start or end without ritual is a mistake. I think Mm. because what got a lot of people through COVID and through the pandemic was dreaming of returning to the way things used to be. And you're much younger than I am your used to be is shorter than mine. It's easier to move on to the next thing, which we have to do. But if you're younger and you're leading older people, you have to tip your hat to what they loved and to what they lost and invite them into a wisdom place of what can be. I'm wondering how this is going to transition from individual to community. But Mm -hmm. Pauline Boss says there are two kinds of ambiguous loss. And I'm just going to kind of read them so I get it exactly right to you. The first type, she says, is people are perceived by family members as physically absent, but psychologically present. Physically Mm -hmm. absent but psychologically present because it's unclear whether they're dead or alive. So that would be missing soldiers, kidnapped children. That's catastrophic form of that. But everyday Mm. occurrences of that include losses within divorced and adoptive families where a parent or a child is viewed as absent Mm. or missing. The second type is people who are perceived as physically present, but psychologically absent. So an extreme example of that is Alzheimer's disease. That also occurs when a person experiences a head injury and they're in a coma and they come out of the coma different than they were. But everyday situations that occurs with people who are excessively preoccupied with their work and with their other outside interests. So what we have to do is figure out a way in the church to set the table for people to be both physically present and psychologically present. Pauline Boss says the existence of rituals to mark ambiguous losses is an indicator of a culture's tolerance for ambiguity and people don't come to church for ambiguity. So the church (laughs) has lost her voice in naming Mm -hmm. ambiguity. And once we did that, We lost our tolerance for ambiguity. So we're all about certainty, all about it. Last quote from her. Ambiguous loss is the most stressful loss people can face. Not only does it disrupt their family by diminishing the number of its functioning members and requiring someone to pick up the slack, but more uniquely, the ambiguity and uncertainty confuse family dynamics, forcing people to question their family and the role they play in it. Now what I would love if you could do, I'm happy to send you that quote. But wouldn't it be interesting if we if we just use that as church congregation instead of family? And if as leaders of church congregations we were talking about just exactly what I said except that we're going to make it a congregation instead of a family. Because what we're forced to do now is play different roles. We're forced to do that, but not prepared for it. So Mm. the trick then is going to be for pastors to deal with all of these different kinds of loss and for them to be able to do that without diminishing any of the others. So we're going to have to deal with death, loss of job, Loss of place, loss of a Sunday school class, loss of a worship service, loss of worship service. At the time, I love worship. Loss of, oh, I didn't even know she died. I didn't know they moved. I didn't know. I didn't know. There's ambiguous loss just falling on all of us. And we're so distracted by the kind of loss that we're accustomed to that we're not aware of what's happening. So uh, one other thing that I'd like to say, and then I'll stop and answer whatever questions you want me to. But one other thing I'd like to say, say comes from Miriam Greenspan. And I think pastors really need to be dialed into this. I mean, really need to be dialed into this. Because I think they're going to be facing it week in and week out and not know where it came from. Greenspan says that grief and fear and despair are basic emotions. Grief, fear, and despair are basic emotions that are part of everyday life, an inevitable part of everyday life. And she says, of course, there are lots of other emotions. What I would say is, as a result of my study and my reading about grief and loss over the last seven years, I'm convinced that our inability to bear these three, grief, fear, and despair, is the source of most of our individual and collective problems. So Greenspan says, suppressed grief turns into depression, anxiety, or addiction. Benumbed fear, benumbed is her word, I would have never thought of it, but I like it, can easily lead to, hang on for this, this is astonishing. Benumbed fear can easily lead to irrational prejudice, toxic rage, Mm -hmm. and acts of violence. Wow. And overwhelming or unconscious despair is a core ingredient of the increasing incidence of chronic depression worldwide. So she essentially is saying that the inability to tolerate grief and fear and despair is the major feature. Of the epidemic of addictions to alcohol, drugs, technology, entertainment, work, sex, etc., that are afflicting our civilization. I think the summation is this: aborted grief, fear, and despair. Now, those are big words. Aborted grief—that's that's not grieving in real time, or that's having ambiguous loss, or that's lost during a pandemic. Aborted grief, fear, and despair are at the root of the characteristic psychological disorders of our time. And I'm going to just name them. I talked about them, but I'm going to name them again. Depression, anxiety, addiction, irrational violence, and psychic numbing. And those those things are playing themselves out everywhere. And I, I think we have to start saying to people, there are no negative emotions, just unskillful ways Of coping with the emotions that we can't bear. I'm so thankful that this is on your radar. I'm so thankful that you invited me to have a a small voice in this because we got a big challenge, a Mm -hmm. very big challenge. And I am a 60s person, I was in high school. In the last years of the 60s, I graduated in 1969 and I lost friends and presidents were assassinated and Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Vietnam was happening. People were rioting. I was prepared for none of that. And with all the love Mm -hmm. in my heart for the church I grew up in, I turned to my United Methodist Church for help and they were not ready. And I think a lot of people my age did that. And when there were no answers for them, they didn't stay in the church. So the statistics of people my age who stayed in church are not good. Baby boomers left. And I think they left because they were faced with all these things that we're talking about. And they didn't know what to do about it or with it. And so they went to the church and the church
0: didn't know either. As they weren't prepared. That's a good reason right there for us to awaken to the need to grieve and the invitation that you're offering us to do the work, to take that next faithful step, which it sounds like for leaders is to simply hold space. I mean, that's what I hear you're saying. Um, hold space for grief. Have the conversation. Don't just invite people to a dinner. <laughs> I mean, I, um, I just appreciate how you're framing it for us because i feel like you're asking us to go deeper with it than we've ever done before and that is faithful i mean it's the gospel it's it's what's asked of us uh, we hold both faith and grief you know the grief right along with joy i mean it all just goes together as in our faith tradition
3: i think we need some new rituals so i don't know if you can gather a group of people together who have gifts for ritual fours, anagram fours certainly do creative yeah. people that you know do because if every if every church has to face what it's ch- facing if every leader in a church has to face what they're already facing and at the same time try to come up with new rituals that will be meaning for pe- meaningful for people meaningful for people it's too much it's it's more than they yeah. have the space for but there could be a group of very talented folks who come together with different experiences of ritual. You know, Joe was a Catholic priest till he was 40. There's ritual everywhere in his bones, but the Mm -hmm. black church has ritual of a different kind, particularly associated with grieving because of their history. And there's so Mm -hmm. much there that we could gain. There's just so much that if we were willing to commit to creating something new and then offering it to people as something they could do in their churches, might really get people's attention. You know, if we're going to say the same thing we say from the same page that we've said it from at times that didn't compare with this time.
0: Yes. Yes. You are exactly right, Suzanne. Well, thank you for all you've given us for this podcast. I just can't wait for people to hear it, really. I mean, again, I you have this capacity for depth and connection and spirituality that is a gift from God, and we're just so grateful for you willing to share it with us today. So, thank you, Suzanne.
3: Thank you so much. I'm I'm excited about what you're doing and I'm Excited to be part of it. And having talked about grief, I just want to say I'm very hopeful because I I think if we're talking about it, there's a chance we're going to be able to teach people how to do it. And I think that's going to save a lot of pain. So this is a very hopeful conversation. I would sure want it to be heard that way.
0: Definitely. I appreciate you saying that too at the end there. You're exactly right. I mean, this is what you what you shared too um, in, the, in the workshop that I listened to is like, what you're doing is you're helping to share the word with this body of people. And it just keeps more and more people keep having conversation about it, learning about it, dealing with their own grief. Then it just, it is transformative in that way. So this is just one little additional pebble in the pond, right? That we hope will have ripple waves so people can can begin to ad- address this. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truth Work Media. The beautiful music in our episode is from Mark Miller. For more information about Mark, visit his website at markamillermusic.com and find his music on YouTube. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.